The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather together, together with one another and with you. And we sit beneath your hand now and ask you to guide us and teach us, to build us up, to make us whole, to restore us, to lead us into Christian maturity and to lead us into joy, to commune with us. Do that now, please, Father, through your word, by your spirit, in this room, in our hearts, dwell among us and build us up. You make us able to hear and able to follow. Will you make the word clear? Will you make this place, this people here, a church that is tight with each other and tight with you for your honor, for our good, and for your glory in the nations even? So use this time now, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. This morning we finished the book of 2 Corinthians by looking at Paul's closing words of summary, and they are brief, they are, they are right to the point. And it's an interesting point he makes, a sweet point to imagine, really. This has been a long letter with lots of twists and turns and a fair bit of underlying tension. As continually Paul has felt compelled to defend himself and to defend his ministry and his ministry methods, but at the end here, he can summarize all of what he's said and bring it to a specific point, especially in verse 11, that lays out for us a snapshot of a blessed church. The kind of church Paul's been laboring for, writing for, the kind of church that God wants, and, and really the kind of church that we want, that, that we all want to be a part of. We want to be in and among, and, and the world wants to see right here sketched out in some quick commands and then prayed for in a final blessing, a closing benediction. So it's a church that we're going to consider this morning in verses 11 to 14 that is a, a summary of, of much of what he said before. We're going to use some of these verses this morning to glance back at pieces of the preceding chapters, but we're always going to be keeping in mind this the summary of the church that that God is looking for and that we're after, commands and calls us to a church that lives together well with one another, lives beneath his blessing and enjoys his presence with each other and beneath his hand and enjoying his presence. That's, that's the kind of church that we want. He's laying out for us this morning. So let's look at it. Here at the very end, we're going to read verses 11 to 14 and then draw out two observations from them. Beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's the end of the letter, 2 Corinthians. I make two observations, and here's the first. 
We must walk with God and his people to enjoy his presence. We must walk with God and his people to enjoy his presence. Verse 11 begins, Finally, brothers, really we could say brothers and sisters, he means the church family, and that, that's just his introduction, but, but pause there for a second and notice something. This is not the main point by any stretch, but just in passing, Paul tells us a lot about how he views these problematic people. He views them as brothers or sisters. It's the family of God. Now, of course, he can't vouch for everybody there. He doesn't even know who's present when they read this letter, and he has already said pretty clearly what he thinks about the false teachers that are in their midst. They are not Christians, But as he talks about the whole body, all of the people, the bulk of them, even those who are swayed and troubled and problematic, he calls them brothers who need to change, who need to exert some effort, some some repentance and obedience in a different direction. He's about to say that. But this is for the church, people of God, and Paul's not angry or frustrated with them but is for them, for their good. The people of God. And so he gives them five commands here in verse 11, for them, for their good, in union with them as brothers, sisters. These, these commands, most of them are just one word, and it makes them pretty quick, kind of a staccato rhythm to the, to the sentence. And if you look at them, it might seem like it's kind of a random list of stuff just kind of piled together here, but I think as we consider it, we'll see there's actually a flow to these commands. He starts with rejoice, which some translations render as goodbye. I'm not sure if you're reading a translation that puts it as goodbye, which is very confusing. What's going on here is that the word actually is rejoice, but some people acknowledge that back in that day, some people ended letters with this word rejoice, really meaning it kind of like a generic farewell. Maybe like we say something like, see you later, but we don't really mean I'm going to see you later. It's just, bye. So some, some think that's what Paul's doing here, but that's not the best way to think about this. He's beginning a list of five commands. He's giving a command And there's a flow to them. He's actually saying, like he says, often elsewhere, he's talking about rejoicing, and he's giving the command to rejoice. In fact, back in chapter 1, he said this was his ministry purpose in the church. Do you remember the end of chapter 1? I'm here to work with you for your joy. Not here to lord over them, not, not trying to be bossy or to lord over their faith, but to share with them the joy that is ours in the gospel. And then he spent several chapters talking about all that's worth rejoicing about in the gospel of Christ. The good news about what God has done, not, not so much about what we're supposed to do, the good news about what God has done, and then laid out all that's worth rejoicing about there. The glorious fact that in the gospel, unlike in the law of Moses, different than the law of Moses, in the gospel, the new covenant message, God indeed sets us free from sin. Sets us free from condemnation. And God actually then reveals to us the glory of God in the face of Christ. We can actually see him 
and commune with him. And then it brings about actual transformation inside of us as we see him. We are made new. Do you remember that? And do you realize that? That you are made new, brother, sister. New creations in Christ. And you see all the world then through new eyes. You see everything around you differently. You see affliction and hardship through new eyes. And we realize, we who are in Christ realize that even when we're battered and afflicted and hard-pressed, and even when we are coming to the point of despairing of life itself, the one that we know is the God who is able to raise the dead. That's who he is for us in the gospel. We are his. And so there is a sure hope, and we do not lose heart. Of course, there are all kinds of reasons one might lose heart. There are light and momentary afflictions on every page of every day. So what is it for you? It's helpful. We looked at this before. It's helpful to kind of make a list. You know, what's your light and momentary affliction? What's your trouble? What's your hardship? Write it down. Put it on a piece of paper. Write it down in your mind. And write over the top of it, light and momentary not because it's actually light and momentary in the moment, but like Paul points out, by comparison to the eternal weight of glory that's coming to you because of that. Remember this, this is back in chapter 4. Paul's really clear about these things. Yes, we face trouble. Yes, we face hardship. Yes, we are clay pots constantly afflicted. But in the gospel, God has done something astonishing for you. And so there is great reason for hope. Great reason to have courage in life. Incredible reason to be thankful when we look at even the hardship. These are the opening chapters of this letter and Paul made really clear, Christian, there is a great hope for you That's how you live now and forever, rejoicing. Not by just counting the hardship as hard, but by counting the glory that is to come and the glory that is yours now as greater. So you look at those afflictions, you look at the hardships, and in the face of them, the command to rejoice is reasonable and right. Because we have so much to rejoice in. This is true of you. True of us now. So to develop the habit of giving thanks would be really, really helpful for you. To give thanks for the small things and thanks for big things and thanks especially for gospel-created things. That's what leads to joy. To notice God for you. And exercising your will towards that end would be a blessing to your soul. It would be good for the church. It would be good for the world as the world would see a people who are happy and finding their joy not in the stuff of the earth but in Jesus. That's where he starts. Rejoice. And secondly, be made whole. 
or restored, complete, full again. It's just like up in verse 9, he's talking about Christian maturity. We saw this last week, he prayed for it, and now this week he commands us to pursue it. And I think this is best understood in connection to the third command in this list, which probably is in your footnote, or maybe if you're looking at the NIV, it's actually in the main line of your text. It reads something like, listen to my appeal. That's really the emphasis here. It's not actually about comfort in the, the comforting sense, it's comfort in the encouraging sense. I'm, I'm encouraging you to, to come somewhere with me. I'm, I'm exhorting you to follow me into something. Everything that Paul has, has said, has taught, has commanded, has exhorted, has, has encouraged with, has appealed, in a sense, all that he has taught, all his teaching here, is what he's laying in front of us here in the third command and saying, listen to all of this. This is what would, would help to restore, to heal, to make you whole and mature again. So things like if you, if you kind of move through the book again and remember, he had encouraged us and appealed to us to remember the gospel and see affliction in light of it. To embrace the ministry of reconciliation. To break off fellowship with the things of the earth, including the temple worship and all of its, its temptations towards sexual immorality and to pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. To give generously and cheerfully according to one's means. To meet the needs of the people in the body and even in the world around. To shun all human methods and all power plays and all forms of manipulation and celebrity and dependence on human wisdom and eloquence but to instead embrace the weakness that God may bring because that's where his power shines through. All those things Paul exhorted them. Maybe as I, I just kind of dance through them, maybe you remember some of them. Obviously, there's a lot of chapters there, and obviously we can't go into depth about any one of them, but, but I dance through them because I'm hoping that maybe it'll, it'll like catch you and it'll jar something in your memory, and maybe that's something that you should review. You should go back and this afternoon even read again or, or consider your notes again because maybe God said something to you or exhorted you or appealed to you or encouraged you in some way in the past and you would be helped to revisit that. But all of those things, all of these chapters, they are the instruction from God through Paul to us that we are called to listen to, to heed Not just to know, but to do. This is the command of God. It's how we pursue maturity, which is fitting for us as his people. All that Paul put before us in all these chapters, it's God's word. It's truth to us. And if we think about it as God's word, God's truth, we realize it's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's not maybe like this or maybe like that. There, there is a body of truth delivered from God through his apostle to the church. And so the fourth command makes perfect sense. Be of one mind. Which is different than the fifth command about living at peace and living in, in some united uh, harmony or uh, relationship. This is about one mind, a, a united, joined, c 
connected understanding of what Paul said. We need both. We need a unity around the content, a unity around the understanding of the doctrine, and a, a communal unity, a, a relational unity, a harmony. Both, not either or. It is common to talk about, let, let us be relationally united by skipping the details of the truth. No. By embracing the details of the truth. Four comes before five. We, we come to a united, an understanding that is a oneness of mind about what it is that God says, what it is that God has called us to, and then standing on that truth, we are united, harmoniously one. Both together we need, not either or. The, the unity that is in the church is a unity that is first upon a single truth given by God through his apostle in the scriptures. And it is worth us hearing the command here, which means there's some work to do to come to one-mindedness. And we know that may be hard. We know that certainly there are some things that Bible-believing Christians differ in understanding on. But if we spend actually time humbly working looking at the scriptures together, properly exegeting them, you'd be surprised what we can find out. We can come to a large space of understanding, of, of united truth. Oh, there will always be things around the periphery that we, don't, that we don't completely understand. We love each other across those lines, yes. But there is a large body of central truth that we can understand if we will heed the command to be of one mind and humbly pursue what the Bible says. We do that, and we seek accord, seek to live in peace with one another. The church in Corinth probably needed to hear this. It was, as we saw, a church that had a, a lot of turmoil in it, and so there were probably groups and schisms and fragments that believed Paul and didn't and followed the false teachers and didn't and disliked each other for their own positions. So he calls the, the church there to harmony, towards peace, and then encourages them to greet one another with a holy kiss, a common greeting in that time. And he just makes clear there's something that's holy about this, not something that is awkward or, or untoward. He's saying this is union. In the church and with all the other people who themselves greet you, the other saints. So, five commands. Fired off one after the other. They connect to one another in this chain of sorts and they point us back at all the content of the letter, which I just kind of skipped through. They lead us to recall different elements. We rejoice in God's salvation while we strive for maturity, hearing what God has said through Paul, commonly understanding it, and seeking to be at peace with one another. We live beneath God's hand with the people of God. That all kind of makes sense. And now notice this. The next line, the end of verse 11, 
and the God of love and peace will be with you. Notice the connection there. Five commands. Do this, and if you do, as you do, then God will be with you. We need to pay attention to that because it adds a little, little bit extra oomph to these commands and, and the call in them to us. What's he talking about here? Well, God obviously is always with his people in some sense. He's he never going to leave us, never going to forsake us. So he doesn't mean that we will in some way earn God's presence or we'll get him to come when he is otherwise not here. He's talking about something different, about experiencing positively the presence of God, experiencing it sweetly, experiencing it as love and peace. God is always here, but how will he be here? Will he be here in love and peace, or will he be here in discipline and sternness? Will he come with the conflict of a spanking, or will he come with the comfort of a smile? That's the question, and if you remember the very end of this, that's the question that ends with Paul coming to Corinth. I'm going to come, and I will bring with me the Lord Jesus. The question is, when I come with the Lord Jesus, how will I come? To not spare you? or to greatly encourage you and work with you for your joy? Which is it going to be? It's up to you, church. The Lord is always with us. Will he be with us with discipline, or will he be with us with delight? That's the question before us. And this is not, this is not an option laid out for us, really. It's, it's one of those options that isn't an option, an offer that you have to accept, you can't refuse. This is the command of the Lord five times here. I command this and this and this and this. And so we have, before those commands, we have choices to make. We have truths to set our minds on and commands to obey and people to love and serve and link arms with. That's what he's laid before us. The salvation that we have been given needs to be lived out, needs to be worked out, not to become Christians, but because we already are brothers and sisters. Here's the life laid in front of us. We're called to it. Of course, behind that always is the God who is at work within us to work out of us what he's commanded. That's true. But on, on the front end, we look at it that this, on the front end ourselves, we are thinking and choosing and acting beings. And we have to think and choose and act. With a happy heart full of joy, pursuing maturity by listening to God's word, and loving God's people. And not loving the world and setting our minds and hearts on all the offerings that are out there, not focused on the hardships and the afflictions, but focused on what God has given us. Set your minds on things above. 
That's always his call to us, the church. And his promise is, and I, the God of love and peace, will be with you. Okay. I just kind of ran through all that. And I'll say right now, the environment in the room feels really weird to me. I don't know why that is, but it feels weird. It feels flat. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> Somebody shook his head and said, nope, <laughs> not just me. Okay, so maybe it feels flat because I'm doing a survey of a whole book of the Bible. I don't know. Maybe it feels flat because we all got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. I don't know. Maybe it's just me and Steve. Maybe everybody else feels fine. Would you stop for a second and think about this? Here God has said, Rejoice. Pursue maturity. Heed my word. Together united on it and love the people of God. And I'll be with you. That's the church we want. That's the church we want. And he wants. And the world wants to see. So I don't know what's going on here, how we're all feeling about this, but wow, something just changed. <laughs> I don't know what that was. Maybe it's a volume thing. Are you down for this or not? It's up to us. The church is, is called here to make a decision. What, you, what do you want here? Here's the five commands at the end of the book. The, verses 13 12, 13, 14 are almost like standard greetings and closings. This is the last verse of really of this particular book. And here it is in front of the church. You want it, yes or no? Yes. yes. Good. Good. You want it, yes or no? Yes. So rejoice and pursue him and his word and his people. What fills your mental time? You can say yes, and then what fills your mental time is everything else under the sun except this. You may want it, but you won't get it then. Are you pursuing these five commands with your own mind, thinking and making decisions and choosing? Ask the Lord, maybe, let's look through those five things and maybe you can catch some of the... the the skippings through the book that I pulled out here and there, maybe you can skip through those things and say, which of these is my biggest miss right now, Lord? I'm, I'm somewhere with all of them. Which is the biggest hole? Let's work on the biggest hole first. Which is the biggest miss? Maybe I don't really pay much attention to your word or I spend very little time loving the people of God. I most try to avoid them because I can't stand them. Or joy is something I heard about once and read about in a book, but I don't know it at all. Which is your biggest miss? Maybe repentance is in order, and maybe something that I just said needs to be revisited. Joy, look at the gospel, not your troubles. Uh, 
the word, look at the scriptures, not the world. The people of God, love them, not yourself. I don't know. What's your biggest miss? Maybe repentance is in order. But if we want this church, something here, indeed, praying and looking to God to give it, indeed, but something here says, command, 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 pursue it. And do so in hope because of the reality of the second observation, which I love. <laughs> I spent a lot of time this week just thinking about verse 14, kind of stewing in it. It's the closing verse of the book. It's a closing benediction, which kind of works like a prayer, sort of. You know, may this be is also God, may you make it. it. It's kind of a prayer as it's a benediction. Something for us, the people of God. So here's, here's the statement, then we'll unpack it. So second observation. In the triune God, we have what we need for life. In the triune God, we have what we need for life. And I mentioned the triune God because we should notice that here, mentioned as it is in such an offhanded manner. We talked about the doctrine of the Trinity way back in chapter 1 at the beginning of the book, and here it is again at the end. Verse 11, as we saw, talks about the God of love and peace, and here in verse 14, that one God is expanded out into three persons, each of whom are independent of the other, each of whom relate personally to Christians, to us, and each of whom brings something relationally different to us. This is how the Bible teaches the Trinity. There is never a, now let me sit down and explain the doctrine of the Trinity passage in the Bible. It's just thrown out here, assumed. Three in one. This is the God who is, Father, Son, and Spirit. That traditional order is altered here in verse 14 on purpose in this final benediction. Consider all of this and, and take it all in here. This is God towards you, Christian, towards us, the church. He begins with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, the eternally existing God the Son became a man, Jesus. He who was infinitely rich. This is how he's described in this book. The one who was infinitely rich. Who possessed all dignity and all right and all honor to all things. Had all power and all authority through him, everything that's created was created, and it was created for him. And in eternity past, as he existed forever in the past without any beginning, he perfectly, completely enjoyed all of the love and joy and delight that union with God, within the Father, Son, Spirit, Godhead, would provide him. He had everything relationally one could ever want, and then when anything was created, it was all his. 
used, given to him to enhance his honor and glory. He was rich in every conceivable way. He's God the Son. Infinitely rich. And that one became poor for you. Who had none of all that. Who deserved none of all that. But in fact rejected all that. And all of him in his beautiful majesty. You and all of us. We all were poor. Lacking anything good. And that by our own fault. Because of our own sin. You'll never understand. You'll never understand God. You'll never understand the world. You'll never understand your own life and your own place in the world until you recognize the depth and the awfulness and the evil of your own sin. Now, I say this knowing that some of us spend a whole bunch of time focused exclusively on the depth of our sin. And maybe I need to say to you, lift up your eyes and see the Lord. But sometimes, occasionally, I talk to somebody who says, I don't get it. I don't understand why this is all such a big deal. And what I want to say back is, that's because you don't get your sin. This is the biggest of all deals, only if you get your sin. Jesus himself said, only the sick go to a doctor. For people who aren't sick, doctors are irrelevant. Kind of wonder what the big deal is. Who needs them? When you're sick, though, you get it. When you understand your sin, you get Jesus and why it is such a big deal. Jesus' as healer, as gracious healer of our sin-sick condition, makes sense to the person who realizes he or she is sin-sick and broken and poor and needy and without hope in this world. That's who we are, and he stood over us, rich, possessing everything. And thank goodness, he was also rich in mercy and grace. This is the grace of the Lord Jesus. You've got to look at this. He became poor for you. He took on our nature and took on our predicament and even took on to himself our sin as he went to the cross to pay for it, giving up his life for us. This is the glory of the grace of Christ. He is such a generous giver. He gave to us sufficient substitute payment for your sin which is the biggest of all deals, if you realize it. He satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf, which is the biggest of all deals, if you realize it. He gave you a connection, an unbreakable union with him. He gave you a new life in him and a new position so that you now constantly stand in grace. That is, you stand in favor. You stand as one favored by God. No longer under condemnation, but smiled upon. And he gave you a promised future. All of that in the giving of himself for you on the cross. That's grace. Past, present, and future disposition of Christ towards you is a smile. And Paul lists it here first on purpose. That's kind of out of order. 
because he wants us to think about something, something that, that grace did for us. It opened up a door. It opened up for us something of an experience that we would not otherwise have. The grace of Christ gave us what? If you think about this, grace and all that I just said, those, those are all concepts. And I said repeatedly, if you sense it, if you know it, if you feel it, they're, they're concepts that intellectually make sense, but they're kind of out there and we lack touch point with them. We can't feel them. So what the grace of Christ does is it opens up a door to the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The next two points in the benediction. Technically, it would be accurate to say that the love of God the Father comes first. God loved us in eternity past, and that's why Christ came in grace to save us. So there, there is a technical order there, but we as people are completely unaware of what God was doing in eternity past. We can't sense it. We can't feel it. We have no touch point there. We feel the love of God now. And so there's, there's, there's a reason that Paul puts these things this way, to, to reveal to us something that, that Christ did. He opened up the floodgates of this vast, held-back reservoir of God's love so that it could pour out on us and shower us and even drown us in, in this wide, long, high, deep affection of God the Father, your dad, towards you. This is true of you, brother, sister. God loves you. That's ridiculous. God knows you at all is, I guess, amazing. <laughs> I don't understand what's going on here. This is a weird morning. God knows you. God loves you. Wide and long and high and deep. Differently than how he loves the rest of the non-Christian world. Get, get this clear. Like any good woman who is also a mother... She cares for all the kids in the neighborhood, of course, absolutely. Doesn't want any of them to get hit by a car. Serves all of them cookies after, after school if they come over. But she loves her own kids in a very, very different way. Very, very differently. Far more deeply, far more passionately. She's more attentive to their needs. She's more concerned for their hearts and their minds and their character and their education and their behavior. She disciplines her own kids saves up for the future of her own kids, sacrifices for the enjoyment and well-being of her own kids. She holds them and kisses them and claims them and defends them and listens to them and instructs them. They are hers, not someone else's. She loves her kids, her children. God loves you, his child. That's you, Christian. 
He looks upon you and cares for you and provides for you and leads you and defends you. He's concerned for you. He's affectionate for you. He actually likes you. Warts and all. You with your past. You with your present. He's fond of you. He sees your past and your present and your warts and all, which does not mean he is not intimately concerned with changing all those things. It's because he likes you that he wants to change you. Because he wants what's best for you. He wants you to be like Christ, like the human being you were made to be. An image bearer of God. His commitment to change you, to grow you up in maturity, and to teach you the way in which you should go is because you are his beloved one. He doesn't leave you alone. He doesn't look past you. He doesn't love someone else more than you. He loves you, his child, as much as equally with all of his children. This is the active love of God. Do you doubt that about yourself before him? Ever since Genesis 3 and the fall in the garden, we get love wrong. We go one of two wrong ways. We've got two ditches here. We either presume upon it and think of, that I am right just and fine just as I am, and God will never want to change me, never want to correct me, never want to grow me. I'm good. Or, I think as is more common in a church like ours, we wonder if we'll ever be good enough. Because I hear the pastor talking about what's wrong with me. I hear him say I need to get a hold of my sin. And so I spend multiple hours circling the bowl, going down deeper and deeper and deeper into it until I get really convinced of how wretched I am and I wonder if God actually likes me. That's the other ditch. I think we're probably more inclined towards that ditch. But maybe you personally are inclined towards the presumption ditch. We get it wrong in both those two ways. Right down the middle. God loves you and wants to change you into Christ-likeness. And God loves you and wants to change you into Christ-likeness. And is committed to doing that, Christian. That's why he came for you. The love of God is vast and wide and high and deep. It is active. It is real but we would not even be aware of that, able to sense that, without the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The third piece of the benediction. See, all that I just said also is idea and theory that you could read about in a book. But it becomes more than theory when it actually connects with us and moves into our hearts and minds and affects how we think and how we feel. And that affecting how we think and affecting how we feel, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit fellowshipping inside of you. That connecting, that relating is what we experience individually, me, and corporately, us, as God the Holy Spirit dwells in our midst, amongst us as a people and within me as a person. The God of heaven has come to inhabit a place, astonishingly, me and you and us. 
your heart. This was the greatest of the Old Testament promises. No longer would God dwell in the Jerusalem temple and invite his people to come visit him in order to commune with him. In the new covenant, as the prophets foretold, I will put my spirit within you. We each become the temple of God. And Paul will go so far in the book of Galatians as to teach that this was the point of the gospel, if you think about it in this way, that the blood of Christ cleanses the temple to make me clean so that God can live in me. That's the point of the work of Jesus to make me clean so that God can live in me and travel with me and travel with you wherever you go, communing with you, to give you guidance when you need it in that coffee shop conversation, to comfort you when you need it in that hospital room, to give you power when you need it in witnessing to your classmate or saying no to temptation, hope when needed in disappointment, Calm peace when needed, energetic fervor when needed. The Holy Spirit is in you to bring to you the experience of God fathering you, to bring to you the experience of God loving you, God guiding you, God caring for you, the experience of it. It's happening out there always, but you have no touch point with it until the Spirit of God says, look, feel, see God for you. Know it. constant and consistent and good so that you can know him and walk with him and rejoice in him now and forever, come what may. In the end, this is what we need. We're not really much different from the Corinthians. We are messed up people who need to be comforted amidst affliction and encouraged to believe that God is not gone when things get hard. We shun weakness and loss, and we love victory and success, and often we're willing to compromise ourselves to get it. We're drawn to the world with its idolatry and its immorality. We struggle with the right use of money, we love shiny things and success and power. We are persistently drawn to the theology of works righteousness. We try to do good to prove ourselves good. That's us. At least that's me. And I think that's you. That's the church in some persistent and abiding way, in these persistent and abiding ways, we are broken. And the way out of that is not to deny it or not think about it. The way out of that is to say, okay, but the gospel is true. So rejoice and pursue mature wholeness by heeding Paul's exhortations and encouragements. 
and do that together as we understand it in unity and live in peace here. And as we do that as a church, the God of love and peace will fellowship with us and give us all that we need. he give us himself. And that's what, that's who we need in the end. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.